Now we're in our super duper Bible verse uh, series that we've been going through. And thank you all for submitting marvelous verses. Obviously, we've not gotten to all of them, but we will. So when Freeman needs a break or just gets tired of you, uh, which I, I think is going to happen, folks, uh, we'll pick up on this particular series. But for tonight, I am pleased to choose the super-duper Bible verse, which has been submitted by my one and only super-duper wife. That's her right there in the back row, Sue. And she submitted that, oh, come on, Shifra. That's my beautiful granddaughter, and that's her daddy, Grant. And I think my mother grandchild is in that little... His name is Gideon, and he's just, if you go over and see him, he will smile at you. He smiles at absolutely everybody. we got to teach him to stop doing that because people cannot be trusted. <laughs> but for now, he's just a smiler, and that's our beautiful granddaughter, Shifra, which is a Hebrew word for beautiful, and she is inside and out. So my wife's super-duper Bible verse for tonight is a verse you're familiar with, but we're going to dig in and take a close look. It's Nahum chapter 1, verse uh, 7. Before we get to verse 7, however, remember, now that's my other son right there, Ben. You know, they're so pleased to see me step down. They, they've, come, they've come over. <laughs> so my son, Ben, he's a police officer with Houston Police Department. He's with HPD for the last 11 years. And he's, he, was in, uh, he was in homicide, and uh, let's just say there's plenty of work for homicide detectives in Houston, sadly. And now he's in a new division called CID, Criminal Intelligence Division, where he does investigations. So we're real, we're real proud of Ben. Uh, well, okay. So uh, remember we've emphasized context ruling. And so though we're extracting our super duper Bible verses, we don't want to just pluck them out of the context of the text. So if you will, back up with me to begin the beginning of the chapter, uh, Nahum chapter one, verse one. Look, the oracle of Nineveh. Oracle is, uh, well, it's a message given by God to a prophet. Oracle. Uh, it's also translated burden. Your Bible may actually use that word. Some may say it would be glamorous to be a prophet, wouldn't it? No, 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 no. It's a burdensome task because God gives to the prophet that which he expects the prophet to deliver. The whole story, good news and bad news. In many cases, prophecies of judgment upon sinful and rebellious people. And so in this case, Nahum the prophet had to carry this oracle or, or burden to the people. He had to, in essence, lift it up and carry it to recipients, many of whom were not even willing to hear it. The time of the writing of this oracle was probably around 612 BC. How do we know that? Because that's about the time when Nineveh, the city mentioned here, was destroyed. So you can just do the math and see that this was written, you know, some 2,600 years ago. Nineveh was the capital of one of the cruelest, vilest, most powerful, most idolatrous empires the world has ever known. Would you like to guess as to which one it is? It's Assyria. Billy, you're correct. 
It's the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh was located, I'll show you some stuff on the map, uh, in what is, it's Iraq, modern-day Iraq, near the town of Mosul. Now, you may have heard about it in the news because we a number of our troops have been committed there in recent years to go to Mosul and establish an American presence for various reasons. So that's where Nineveh is located, right on the banks of the Tigris River. Just to give you a frame of reference, this is the Mediterranean Sea over here. Egypt is down here. This little sliver is Israel. And so if you go off this way to the right or to the east, you're in Iraq. And uh, that's where Nineveh, ancient Nineveh, was located. Uh, just to give you an idea what kind of city it was, it was walled. This is an artist's depiction of it. It encompassed about um, uh, 1,800 acres inside the walls. Now, that's huge for a city in that particular day. It had about, you see these towers? Uh, it was garrison-like. They had about 1,200 such towers, and a population of over a quarter of a million people. So that's quite a big city. Now, the text tells us that this oracle of Nineveh is referred to as the book of the vision, meaning uh, it didn't come to Nahum by natural inclination or wisdom. It came from revelation. What was unavailable to natural man was made available to God's choice instrument, his prophet, by revelation, not by intuition. Now, what we are told about Nahum here is about the sum total of what we know about Nahum. We're told he's Nahum the Elkashite, meaning he comes from a place called Elkash. Where is it? Well, you see, we don't know for sure. We don't know exactly where Elkosh is located. We know his name means comfort. This is a message of judgment which he is to deliver against Assyria. And how would it be a message of comfort? Well, it wouldn't be to the Assyrians, but it would be to the Israelites who are now being oppressed and exiled by Assyria. So Nahum or Nahum means comfort. Now, some of you have been to a place called Capernaum. Kfar Nahum, meaning the village of Nahum. Did he come from that place? Probably not. <laughs> it is named after a Nahum, but we don't know if it is this Nahum in particular who bears its name. However, the name means comfort, and he's coming with a message from God that has the potential to comfort his otherwise enslaved and exiled people. Now, speaking of God, let's find out some more about him. Nahum 1-2. Here's a description of the attributes of God. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. Uh, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. Uh, the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now, as you look there, you can see in one verse, God is described two times with this a rather distasteful word, avenging. Also in this uh, verse, you can see a reference uh, to the wrath of God two times, wrathful or wrath. Uh, uh, furthermore, he's described here, is the word jealous in here? Avenging God, avenging God. Where is it? Oh, 
Oh, oh my goodness. There you go. Thank you for yelling. <laughs> Jealous God. Now, think about it. Uh, you know nothing but this about God, let's just say. How does that make you feel? Surely, this can't make you feel like you want to cuddle up to this deity. Wrathful, avenging, and jealous. A collection of characteristics that don't look attractive and inviting. It's not designed to make us feel all that comfortable. A jealous God? Well, yeah, but be careful. When we refer to God as being jealous, it's different than human jealousy. When we're jealous, it's usually because someone has something we want. Let's not reduce God to that low level of jealousy. This means God has a desire for certain things that are rightfully his, namely us. He jealously is desirous of the well-being of those for whom he died who he redeemed. Now, that's what the word redemption means. He purchased us, bought us with quite a price, meaning he has ownership of us, meaning he's jealous over the welfare of those whom he owns, meaning those who touch God's people in essence have touched God. They're messing with God. Think about it, folks. Don't take any potential prejudice or persecution against you as a believer, do not take it personally. Good night. Your father is affected. If they mess with God's kid, they mess with God. He's jealous of the well-being of his people, and he is rightfully jealous of his glory. Why? Is he an insecure egomaniac like we? No, he is not. Same word, but different connotation entirely. He's jealous of his glory for this reason. There's nobody like him. He's the only one and true God. For God to be glorified is in everyone's best interests because it rules out pretenders to the throne. God is jealous of his integrity as the only true God. Furthermore, he's jealous of his holiness. There is none like him. So his jealousy extends to his people, to his glory, and to his holiness. In other words, folks, he will not tolerate attitudes like this expressed by one of the ancient kings of the empires in the day. I am Ashurbanipal, the great king, mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, the great gods, magnified my name, they made my rule powerful. See, God will not tolerate that kind of expression, uh, that the audacity, the, 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 the claims uh, by the creature to essentially be on the same level as the creator. God is jealous of his own glory because if people buy into the declaration and claims of Asurbanipal, they may be distracted from the worship of the true God and that surely is in no one's interest. So God won't tolerate statements like this. I am powerful. I'm all powerful. I'm a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. Man, this guy sounds like one of the candidates for the presidency of the United States. <laughs> I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings. The chosen one of Asher, Nabu, and Marduk. S.R. Hayden made that statement. 
God cannot allow it to go on again, not because he can't take the heat or he's threatened. He is so desirous of people finding their way to him. He alone who could meet their needs. He cannot tolerate someone being a pretender to the throne. He's jealous of the well-being of his people, of his holiness, and of his glory. The one true God jealously guards his people, glory, and holiness. And because he is holy, he cannot let sin go unpunished. Hence, uh, the phrase we read already, he reserves wrath. He reserves wrath for his enemies. You know, if you consider yourself to be a saved person and someone asks you the question, saved from what? Here's your answer, from the wrath of God. How do I know that? Well, because it was fully outpoured on Jesus in our place. That's why. But he reserves wrath for those who don't know him. That is to say, for his enemies. You know what that means? God's justice is right on time. He's quite restrained about it. He's not like you and I quite impulsive, unbridled at times and unrestrained with our anger and our passions to give people a piece of our mind or what they deserve. Oh, justice will come. But according to God's time, it's not prompted uh, by what uh, those who deserve justice do or say. It is prompted by God's own sense of the rightness of his time. Therefore, he reserves wrath for his enemies. In fact, here's what the next verse says. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. The Lord is slow to anger. You know what that literally means? It means he is long of nostril. Isn't that interesting? It's a Hebrew expression. It means he's not prone to impulsive anger because uh, Jewish people think flared nostrils are a clear sign of unbridled anger, kind of like this dude. <laughs> Look at those babies. He is not a happy camper. So, so that's not God. He is long of nostrils. He's not given to flared nostrils. That's essentially what the, mean, what the word means. But now listen. We dare not take the patience of God to be a sign of the weakness of God. No, the text tells us he's great in power. And just to review that, look, the Lord is slow to anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But great in power. So God's uh, patient is not weakness. In fact, his patience allowed these very Assyrians to continue on. 150 years before this text, God sent somebody to Nineveh. Remember what his name was? He sent Jonah. Remember to give those people a warning? And they heeded it for a spell. And yet 150 years later, good night, they're in active rebellion against the God who showed them grace and mercy. They repented initially, but soon returned back to their evil ways. And so God has been very patient with them. I don't think I ever hung in there with someone 150 years yet. But God has. And so his uh, patience, uh, however, should not be taken to mean that he lacks power. Look, though the Lord is slow to anger, he's great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. What does that mean? Uh, he is so powerful that whirlwind and storm are his way. That's a picture of the omnipotence of God. How is it so? The people in Nahum's day, unless they were rich, lived in dried mud brick houses with rather flimsy roofs. How do that, does that structure stand up in whirlwind and storm? When those weather conditions came upon them, they were suddenly uh, aware of their smallness and of the greatness of these uncontrollable elements imposing themselves upon them. And yet those are the very elements of creation in which God is comfortable. In whirlwind and storm is his way. He's not threatened. Folks, look at the devastation of these recent de uh, devastating tornadoes in our country, particularly Kentucky. Horrible. Look how it reduces us to our very frail nature. But that's not the case with God, fully in control. He's comfortable with these things that cause us to be quite fearful. So in a storm, people would be quite aware of their smallness in the face of nature's power, uh, but that's not the case with God. The Lord's way is in the whirlwind and storm. He walks about in them, so to speak. In fact, as it says, the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Have you looked up into the sky when it's quite clear and you see these magnificent clouds? My wife can name them for you. This is a serious cloud. This is a cumulus and... Um, I tell her, there's a nebulous cloud. See, there's no such thing, nebulous cloud. That's, that's, that's intended to be a joke, but... <laughs> oh. Apparently it wasn't. <laughs> so, but the clouds are dust beneath his feet. Clouds which seem so vast and unbounded to us are the dust beneath his feet. Furthermore... In describing the attributes of God, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. The sea, to all of us, is one of the most powerful forces in the world, and yet this is strongly indicating God is much more powerful than the seas. In fact, he dries up the rivers. I think that's probably a reference to, well, what happened to the Red Sea? and surely to the Jordan River when the Israelites were entering into the promised land, God, in the power of his word, dried up those bodies of water. Now, here we're reading about uh, places like Bashan and Carmel. So let me, let me mention to you um, some stuff. Here is a view of uh, uh, Bashan, east of the Jordan River an extremely fertile area down to this very day, known for its hefty, healthy cows. You read in the Bible a reference to the cows of Bashan. They're healthy, they're fat, because look at where they have to live and, and graze. What we're reading about here is that God has the capacity even to bring to an end that kind of fertility. Not only in Bashan, but also in a famous place called Carmel. So this is a view of from Mount Carmel. You know, that's where 
Eliyahu, Elijah, did battle with the prophets. Again, many of us who've been to Israel have stood right on this very place and overlooked this valley. That's the Jezreel Valley. See how beautiful and peaceful it is? Not forever. That's the staging area of the Battle of Armageddon right there. There won't be war there. That's the staging area for the armies of the world to come. Why? Because they want this area? No, 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 no. They want to go south. They want another city. Can you guess which one? They want Jerusalem. Why? Because it's the city of the great king. That's where Jesus is coming back. If you don't know it, I guarantee Satan knows it. So he wants everything that rightly belongs to Jesus. So uh, uh, this is a view from Mount Carmel. It's actually, it's a magnificent, beautiful place along uh, the, it's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea known for its magnificent uh, fertility. If even Carmel, in other words, under the power of God, can be made to dry up, then the rest of the land will certainly be in trouble. Furthermore, there's a reference to the blossoms of Lebanon withering. In this case, this is not a reference to the modern country of Lebanon. It's a reference to another mountain range, the Lebanon mountain range running from north to south, also along the Mediterranean coast, but in higher elevation than even Mount Carmel. It takes a lot of snow in the winter, believe it or not, in Israel. And as a result, when the snows melt, oh my goodness, the water trickles down and causes things to blossom. So this reference to the area, the blossoms of Lebanon uh, weather is an allusion to the fact that God is in control of all this. Here are the three most fertile, well-watered areas in Israel. However, if God says no more water, there is no more water. He's powerful. And so the text goes on to highlight that mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Surely, if you're an Assyrian, this is not helpful to you. But furthermore, if you're anybody not knowing of the Lamb of God, oh my goodness, you're intimidated by this kind of language, and it goes on. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath, there it is again, is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. You can get nervous about these attributes of God. Can you hear my phone going off? It's me. I was hoping you didn't hear it. Yeah. It's the president. He calls me often for guidance. And I tell him a million times, this is just not the right time. No, he doesn't listen, does he? There you go. I should turn it off, shouldn't I? I should, I should uh, but I don't do it. Because if I turn it off, I forget to turn it back on. So that's why, that's why I do that. These, these, this, this collection of attributes of God, if this is all you know about him, can be quite intimidating. But now, to balance it out, we get to my wife's super-duper Bible verse, verse 7. Look at this. The Lord is good. I know we read about an avenging God, a God who's um, prepared in due season to manifest his wrath a jealous God, but he's also this way, good. Furthermore, a stronghold. When? Day of trouble. Not only that, he knows those who take refuge in him. 
Don't miss this. In the midst of declarations of God's power and wrath. Yes, that's how we all should respond. A statement of his wrath unleashed against those who are not his. Notice this remarkably comforting statement with regard to those who are his. To those who are his, we experience these attributes. Folks, let me just tell you something. It's good to be God's. Those who are God's experience his awesome love. Those who are not experience his awesome wrath. There is no third option. So to those who are his, the Lord is good. And because God is good, life is manageable. Life is livable because he's good. Please imagine this terrifying thought just for a moment. He's all powerful. He's the highest authority. He's sovereign but not good. That means life without a good God could be random, unpredictable, out of control, absolutely terrifying. Without the goodness of God, don't you see anything can happen. No guidelines, no bounds, nobody to restrain things. But since God is good, even when terrible things happen, life is not beyond his control. The goodness of God prevails. But his goodness is not like ours again. It's different. His jealousy is different. His goodness is different. I'll tell you what I mean. God does not just do good things. He are good. That's his inherent nature. Our inherent nature is not to be good. It's to be sinful. We have the capacity from time to time to do good things, but that we do good things doesn't mean we are inherently good. When God does good things, it's simply a reflection of his inherent goodness. That's really good, and I'll tell you why. That means God's goodness prevails. Yours and mine does not. Generally speaking, we're good to those people who have provoked our goodness, our good response. People around us, do things, say things, are a certain way, and it stimulates a response on our part. We want to show goodness to those people around us who we think are worthy recipients of our goodness. But if that very person ceases to manifest those qualities, we will withdraw our goodness. But that never happens with God because his goodness is not provoked by the potential recipient of his goodness. What provokes his goodness is that he is good. When we say God is good, that cannot be said of anybody else in the same sense. Don't you see we're safe? One of the biggest fears we have, because we're not good, though we be God's, is that in our non-goodness, we'll forfeit his goodness. Therefore, it's important to know what motivates his goodness. You don't. Neither do I. Our good things don't encourage him to be good our bad things don't dissuade him to be good are you a parent are you a grandparent when your child or grandparent goes astray do you cease to be good well if that's you let's give our heavenly father a little more credit so his goodness is qualitatively different than ours now do you know what led to the sin in the garden of eden 
back in Genesis that messed up everything for the entire human race, it was when Adam and Eve questioned the goodness of God. That was the fundamental reason for their sinning. Don't you see? God gave them a singular directive. It wasn't that difficult. And yet they were provoked to doubt his goodness even in that directive. And therefore they did instead what they themselves thought was good. It was Satan who caused them to doubt God's goodness. It worked and it still works. Even today, Satan tempts us into questioning the goodness of God, thus motivating us to take matters into our own hand. I've got to provide for myself because I cannot trust in the goodness of God. It's the same satanic temptation today as it was in the Garden of Eden. However, how in the world can we say that God is good when in fact so much of what you and I experience is non-good, is bad? Well, in seasons of even intense pain and loss, in seasons of calamity, none of which we are immune from, the Lord is good for this reason. He offers himself as a stronghold. Let me remind you of what it said. The Lord is good, a stronghold. That's how his goodness is manifested, even in times of great calamity. Now, folks, God never promised us we would be free from trouble. That's a whole brand of pseudo-Christian teaching and preaching that's not found in Scripture. A kind of a freedom from adversity theology. A prosperity theology. Lay claim to your right to be free from pain. Show me this in the Scripture. How could it be true when the Lord himself was so much subjected to pain of his own. So I think the Bible says is more likely to demonstrate an adversity theology than a prosperity theology. There's no promise that God, uh, given by God that we'll be free from trouble. However, even though we as kids will have trouble, what separates us from others who do is that when trouble comes to them who do not know God, they have no place to go. However, when it comes to the child of God, we have a stronghold. Notice, in the day of trouble. That's how God manifests his goodness even during difficult times. The Lord himself is the fortified place to which his people can flee in times of trouble. Now, Nineveh, uh, I mentioned, had these unbelievable walls of protection. However, it was useless <laughs> unless you got inside the walls. If you stood on this side and just looked at these big old walls and an invading army came, you would have no defense. You got to get inside. When the Lord says he's the stronghold, uh, to intellectually apprehend that is not good enough. You've got to get into relationship with this God in order for him to manifest himself as a stronghold. You have to accept Christ, in other words. You can't, from a distance, know of him. <laughs> you have to know him personally. You have to get inside the walls of his protective care. An intellectual awareness of the Christ is no different than an intellectual awareness of these protected walls. You have to get 
you have to get on the inside. Otherwise, walls are absolutely useless. Now, notice uh, the verse we just read, my wife's super-duper Bible verse, does not exhort us to be strong. It simply states the Lord is a stronghold. That verse does not exhort us to be in the business of getting stronger. If anything, the verse implies we ought to be in the business of getting better at running to Jesus, who is our stronghold. So the philosophy of the world is contrary to this. I don't know if you know this. The world wants to pump up self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-esteem through mantras like believe in yourself. What? Believe in yourself. You know, if we took time to really get honest with one another about what we're really dealing with, we would not tolerate being in each other's presence. Uh, So the world wants us to believe in the self, and the Bible wants us to crucify the self and be Christ-centered. So that verse does not exhort us to be strong. Stay weak, my fellow pilgrims. Stay weak and run to the protective walls of Jesus. Don't be strong. Don't be tough. Don't fight. Don't get over it. Stay weak. Don't even ask for God's help. Say, oh, God, I can't make it without you. You, you are whom I need. Be my stronghold. Now, God invites it. He states clearly He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. Folks, the same power God is ready to unleash upon his enemies, he's willing to employ in the protection of those who are his. He makes a distinction between those who are his and those who are not. In fact, he's a refuge to those who are his. Back to the verse. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. What an inviting, what an inviting word. He's a refuge to those who are his. So uh, I'm dying to show you this. Queen of our household. Next to my wife, next to my wife. That's Millie. Millie is a senior citizen like her parents. And as a result, she hears things that are not there. She sees things that are not visible to anybody else. She shakes when there's no reason to shake. She has the same irrational kinds of fears a lot of us seniors do. (laughs) What can I tell you? When she hears what's not there, sees what's not there, she will run to mommy or daddy. And she will snuggle up right next to us. The contact with us is like Valium to her. It absolutely calms her down. And when she does that, I, for one, have never said to this cute creature, who are you? I I don't know you. In the same way, when we run to the Lord as refuge, And who doesn't need a safe place? Even from irrational concerns, doesn't matter. 
when we're rattled and unsteady and shaken. If we choose to take God up at his word and run to him as refuge, you will never hear from him, who are you? I do not know you. On the contrary, the verse at hand says, he knows those who take refuge in him. This is not intellectual awareness. It's a relationship term. The sweetest communion between God and the needy child of God is when we take him up at his word and run to him, warts and all. Not laying claim to any rights, but just looking for mercy. He loves it. He loves showing us, you're safe with me. I'm a consuming fire to others, but not to you. You're my child. His affection is most stimulated when we are at our most needy and undeserving. The biggest measure of faith is not when we're strong and virtuous and on top of things. It's the opposite. It's hot on the heels of our sin. Sin is not the problem for God. He has a solution to it. It's our reaction to sin that's troublesome to God. Because for many of us, when we sin, we believe sin is greater than his grace. But even the song says that's not true. His grace is greater than our sin. And when we exercise faith in that regard, oh, God loves it. He loves the fact that we're not making sin the core identity of our lives. We're making him <coughs> the core identity of our lives. He knows those who take refuge in him. Nahum tells us that God is not only good, he's a refuge in times of trouble. Now, the first six verses we looked at are alarming. However, those who belong to God need never be troubled by those first six verses. We've read about his severe wrath tonight upon those who oppose him. But now in this verse, Nahum 1.7, we've just read about his severe mercy upon those who are his. God spoke quite differently through Nahum to Nineveh than he did to ancient Israel, and so too today. He speaks differently to those who are apart from him than he does to those who know him. Jesus did not merely save us from sin. He saved us from the throes of life. He saved us from fear. He saved us from self-reliance, self-dependence, self-esteem. He saved us from all of those things. To those apart from him, even to this very day, he speaks words of wrath. But to those who know him, he speaks words of comfort and assurance. I close simply with this. How do you want Almighty God to speak to you? <clears throat> I hope you want him to speak to you as a beloved son and daughter. I hope so. He's willing to do so. Don't be so proud as to think what you've done is greater than the very clearly stated attributes of God. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the very day of trouble when you and I make recourse to all kinds of other stuff. Overeating, overspending, pornography, Whatever it is, in the day of trouble, we're in pain and we want pleasure. And God says, run to me when you're at your worst. 
Let me show you I'll be at my best. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. As you were with ancient Israel, you are with us. That's the reason for this record of your response to them. If you could manifest these qualities to such an undeserving people group, surely you can to those of us who've run to you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior and Lord. Oh, God in heaven, keep us from being strong. Make us to be dependent, increasingly so. Needy. Weak. For when we are weak, as Paul said, that's the basis of our strength. Thank you that you do not exhort us to be strong, but rather to run to the stronghold. Lord Jesus, you're the stronghold. Thank you for inviting us to find you to be our refuge, our safe place in the day of trouble. Thank you for knowing us just as a father does a child when we're at our most needy point in life. Thank you for saving us from despair, distance, detachment, in spite of what we've done or said or think. Thank you for the consistency of your attributes which are not circumstantial nor provoked by anything in us or out of us. They're simply emanations of your nature. That makes us safe and secure. For though we change, you, Lord Jesus, are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. We praise you for these attributes. We thank you for being a nearby refuge to us in time of need. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, one more thing before you go. A number of people live streamed the service. It's going to continue on January 12th, but with a little modification. Our live streaming beginning January 12th, we're making it simple, will be restricted to this platform, Sagemont Church. Meaning you can live stream it by either going to the Sagemont Church website or using the mobile app or the TV app. Now, folks, even as I just shared that with you, I have no idea what I just said. I don't, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just kind of repeating what I was told to repeat. So others live stream on different platforms, Facebook and YouTube. That's stopping January 12th. One-stop shopping. So for those of you who are live streaming now, you have been duly informed. There you go, folks. God bless you. Merry Christmas. See you next time. <laughs>